0: Welcome everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Uh, a little bit later on, we're going to tell you all about Avengers Infinity War. And we're going to do that with uh, political loudmouth Scott Reed. is an uber fan of the Avengers. He hasn't seen the movie yet. I have. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. We're going to give you the geek version we try and build the excitement of what's happening around this, this weekend. And then I'll tell you sort of the nuts and bolts of what the movie is all about. But first, I want to talk about a couple of documentaries that will be coming your way. Uh, Eventually, you'll be able to see them on streaming services. You'll see them in a theater near you. Um, There's two films here, United We Fan from director Michael Sparaga and The Accountant of Auschwitz from uh, director Michael Schroichet and producer Ricky Gervitz. Nice to see you all. Thank you for having Thank us. You. And uh, let's talk about uh, The accountant of Auschwitz uh, first. I and mean, This is a movie that uh, is powerful. I, I just saw it earlier this week. It's a powerful film uh, about uh, a guy who I honestly think don't think that he really did anything much wrong. He was just following orders. It's that ordinariness of evil uh Uh, excuse that so many Nazis used after the Second World War and into the Nuremberg trials. So tell me, what was it about him that attracted your attention? Now, it could be that he's just one of the last ones. And so he was kind of an obvious choice, but what was it?
1: So um, one of the reasons I I personally wanted to make this film is because when I started reading about the details of this case, I thought, oh, wow, this is very interesting. Usually when you hear Nazi you think automatically of course guilty, Mm -hmm. right? Um, How could you be there and partake in these terrible crimes and not be complicit, uh, But the more I read about him, the more I thought, oh, wow, this is kind of this is not so black and white. Um, he was a small cog in the machine. You know, he grew up in a nationalist socialist household. He joined the Hitler youth. So there is, you know, an argument to be made of, of the whole brainwashing, mm-hmm. you know, aspect. He was not a uh, someone in a position of giving orders. He was not, you know, an ideologue.
0: And we should... His name is Oscar Grunning. Yes. And they call him the accountant of Auschwitz, which is where the film gets its title.
1: Right. And so he was a bookkeeper at Auschwitz at the age of 21. Um, And he... So so he was there. Therefore, he was a cog in the wheel, Mm -hmm. and he helped to run it. Um, But again, he was not killing anyone. He was not pouring the Zyklon B into the gas chambers. He was not instrumental. Um, and later in life, he actually came out against Holocaust deniers publicly um, to to say the facts of, of what happened there.
0: Say that it did happen. That it did, yep.
1: in fact, happen. Um, and that's actually how he became known to prosecutors. So, you know, there's this question. Uh, there's a lot of moral ambiguity, right? Mm-hmm. So does his good, good deed later in life absolve him of his past deeds? And... Past sins and um, also raises questions of complicit, complicity and responsibility, and and who um, should face prosecution for these crimes? Is are the cogs responsible? Um, of course, the the final solution could not have been carried out without all mm-hmm. these cogs. If it had just been the guys giving orders, it wouldn't have happened. Um, but at the same time. You know, all his superiors, all his contemporaries, all the people who did far worse than he did, never faced any kind of justice. Now that the law has changed in Germany, he is. But is it fair? Right. So that's what kind of drew us to this film.
0: Yeah, because there is the moral ambiguity that you present really well. You set it up in the in the film. There are uh, some Germans that say absolutely prosecute, no matter, 92, 94 years old, doesn't matter, prosecute these people, and others that that disagreed, and in fact, the the film makes a a case of one Holocaust survivor that says, you know, I've reconciled with this, I I don't think that he should be charged.
2: Yeah, and for me, when Ricky came to me with the idea, one of the most interesting things was just picturing a 94-year-old man hunched over his walker, walking Mm -hmm. into the courtroom, that image alone, to me, was I had so many questions, why now? Why, like, why should right. we care about this now? And why is this even happening? That alone was was so interesting to me. And then the more you research it and get into it, all these questions get answered. Some of them don't get answered.
0: Well, there's a really, you, you mentioned that. Okay, so we see him go into the courtroom and one of the onlookers who was uh, uh, in a concentration, who was at Auschwitz, says, I look at him. And I'm paraphrasing, but she says something like, I look at him and I just see an old man. And then he crossed his arms and he had this kind of superior tone yeah. when he did this, this kind of thing that obviously triggered something
2: in her. In her.
0: And it's a very yeah. powerful moment.
2: Yeah. That's how she perceived it. You know, mm-hmm. um, He might have just been crossing his arms, but for yeah. her, when he crossed those arms, she saw the same Nazi who would have been in Auschwitz when she arrived with her family in 1944. And almost
0: maybe the indifference of him just crossing his arms. Yeah. And,
1: and of course, that raises another point, which is, you know, is the man who he is now the same person who committed these crimes? Which is one of someone says it in the film, uh, uh, Peter Singer, who's a philosopher, he says, you know... The person he is at 94 is very different from the person he was at 21. And uh, we need to take that into account as, as we pass judgment.
0: The film is called The Accountant of Auschwitz. Uh, director uh, Michael or Matthew, Matthew. Uh, Stoykett is here along with producer Ricky Gervitz. Um, it's interesting uh, when we took a look at the film in its entirety because you have people, and I think it's Alan Dershowitz, who says, uh, you know, whether you do something if you kill people, whether it's 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 50 years ago, you've still killed somebody. And and so he comes out very firmly on the idea that these people should be prosecuted. And I guess that if nothing else, there must be at least a symbolic reason to try them. I mean, they're never going to do any significant time in prison. Many of these people die be, even if they do get tried. They die before they actually serve any time. Um, But symbolically, it it sends a message, right?
2: that's a great point. And for Ricky and I, we're always questioning, like, well, should he have been on trial? Should he not be? And you brought up Alan Dershowitz, who's usually very firm on his opinions. And he says, you know, there comes a point when you see these horrible atrocities happening that you have to know it. it can't be legal to be murdering babies. But he even says it is symbolic. And the fact that a Nazi is actually speaking in court, which has never really happened before, he deserves some sort of credit because how can a Holocaust denier deny that? This guy was a Nazi. He says, I was there. I saw the burning pits. I saw the the gas chambers. So it it can go both ways. Like, he should be on trial, but it's also symbolic and, you know.
0: Yeah, there's some tough stuff in the film as well. There's a, a, a phrase about a baby... That is particularly grim in yeah. the way that, that that child was treated, uh, and and that life ended. Um, the story, though, isn't just about the the uh, court trials. It's sort of uh, placed in the context of a larger um, subtext, I yeah. guess. And the final ten minutes of the film suggests that you know now, as much as ever, we have to be vigilant. Because uh, these kind of things could happen again.
1: Right. And so that's actually, you know, a, a great point because one, I, another reason we wanted to do this film is is because this trial allowed us to explore uh, bigger issues right. and bigger issues that are actually taking place today, not 70 years ago. Yeah. Um and more than anything, this trial allows us to educate people about crimes committed in the past, but also we hope that it forces people to ask themselves questions about today. You know, if how complicit am I in... In the atrocities that are taking place now, it's you can't feign, feign ignorance about what's going on in Syria mm. with ISIS. There are TVs now. There's internet. It's not 1944. Are we responsible? Are you know? Are we lesser cocks? And um, if we lose sight of the past, we we you know, run the risk of repeating it.
0: On a lighter note, maybe <laughs> not even a lighter note, but uh, you you. Interview some fascinating people here. One of them was the lead prosecutor at Nuremberg. And I don't know how old he is, but he's got to be in his he's, 90s. He's 98 years old. Yeah, he's 98 Benjamin years old. Benjamin He's and, amazing. Yeah. And amazing and sharp and yeah. with, uh, it seemed to me, perfect recall of oh. things. And, and he gets fan mail. He gets fan mail <laughs> from people who want him to sign
2: photographs and, and yeah. that kind of thing. He's uh, the
1: most amazing man. Yeah. I mean, he, he deserves his own film. He, he wanted is...
2: to prove to us that he could do 100 push-ups. And he did. <laughs> little, little One for but... every year he's been alive. Yeah, yes. yeah. He's, yeah. He's, Literally. he's fantastic.
1: And that's the thing is that um, you know this film is very. You know, we we have studied Holocaust education. Mm-hmm. Matt and actually Matt and Ma- and myself actually met on the March of the Living, which is a group trip that goes to Poland every year with survivors to visit the camps and the ghettos. And we thought we knew everything there was to know, mm-hmm. um, and that's what. Uh, this making this film made us realize how much we didn't know right. and we learned so much making it and we also met some fascinating people like Benjamin Friends who we had never heard of before. This 98-year-old prosecutor who at the age of 27 prosecuted 22 of the worst, most despicable humans on earth and he was, it was his first court case. The first time is he'd that... ever stepped foot in a courtroom. <laughs> wow. It was, um, his is amazing. He, fa- he fought at the Battle of the Bulge he went to Hitler's lair. He found secret documents that no one had uncovered before about the Einsatzgruppen. That that was, that the Einsatzgruppen were there were three thousand soldiers who killed one point one million people by shooting them into into pits. No one had heard of them before. He went to the lead prosecutor in Nuremberg and he said, "You have to prosecute these people because I have evidence." And the prosecutor, Telford Taylor, said, "Well, I just don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. We are stretched." And he said, will you prosecute them? And Ben was like, okay. So he steps into a courtroom for the first time at the age of 27 to prosecute 22 of the most evil men. And something he says in the film, which is so striking, he said, 22 out of 3,000. Why? Because that's how many people could fit in the dock.
0: Yeah, that's right. Re- yeah, it's that, the
2: amount of seats. There were I, 22 seats
0: in the dock. I remember that line and, and sort of how powerful that is. The film is called uh, The Accountant of auschwitz Uh Keep your eye open on streaming services or at a theater near you. We'll give you all the details, but it's going to be released in theaters. Uh, Ricky, Matthew, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. We've already talked about one of the documentaries I wanted to tell you all about, The Accountant of Auschwitz. Now we're going to talk about United We Fan. This is a much different kind of thing, directed by Michael Sparaga. Nice to see you, Michael. Great to be back. You've been here before. Yep. Uh, This film, you told me about it. You were working on it the last time that I saw you. Okay, yeah. This is a, a, a film about what seems to be kind of a frivolous sort of topic, but the movie isn't frivolous, and that's what I really liked about it. It is the story of people who were able to save television shows that they love from cancellation Mm -hmm. by organizing letter-writing campaigns and and, and that kind of thing. Uh, It starts sort of with the first one of those, the people that got Star Trek saved from extinction, and then moves up to more recent shows like Persons of Interest and that kind of thing. But there's more to it than just
3: a bunch of people that sat around writing letters. Yeah, I just knew that couldn't be sustained for a feature film. I think it... The pitch sounds like an Entertainment Tonight story. It's about fans. I think people have a way of thinking what the movie will be when they hear it's about fans who fight to save their favorite TV shows. And I almost like loathe to talk about it that way. (laughs) You know, I try to tell people... It's a movie about uh, identity. It's about community. The it's, transformative nature of art. Uh, the way people uh, just are so moved by the stories and the characters and in any of the art that they absorb. But this is particularly about television and female empowerment. I mean, Dorothy's story is one of the greatest untold <laughs> stories of female empowerment. And so Dor- tell us about Dorothy. Dorothy Swanson. I mean, she was a Michigan schoolteacher and housewife who was obsessed. I mean, mm-hmm. obsessed with Cagney and Lacey. She had never seen two women doing jobs like that, you know, throwing perps down on the hoods of cars and arresting them and not, you know, when the perps on the car saying, how's your husband, by the way? Yeah. You know, they were just <laughs> actually doing their job. And it moved her to change her whole life. I mean, she left her husband. She started an organization after writing this this huge letter writing campaign to help save Cagney and Lacey, which was hugely successful, formed an organization called Viewers for Quality Television, which was a nonprofit fan advocacy group that saved almost all of the great shows from the 80s and 90s. And she had yearly conferences and award shows that sort of predated the success of things like the Golden Globes, certainly before Comic-Con was anything. She would have... It's amazing.
0: And these, these award shows that she threw, uh, they people went. Kelsey Grammer makes a particularly heartfelt Beautiful. speech in, yeah. in the film we see. But, you know, uh, uh, Scott... Uh, Bakula. Bakula. Uh, is yep. there, like, the the, the, the studios supported these awards. Now, I don't think they all exist All four anymore. network presidents yeah.
3: would sit on pa- You can't today get all four network <laughs> presidents right. to sit on a panel. And they're still, I mean, it's incredible who she brought. They just had no access to fans. There was no internet at that point. They didn't know who was really watching TV right. until this kind of, it's like a book club for television formed and became the taste makers in a way. And they weren't the moral police. People... Sometimes heard viewers quality television and thought, oh, it's a Christian values. They're going to try and shut down NYPD Blue. They're going to try and do this. And they were always sort of defending themselves against that. But they were – the showrunners loved them. The uh, actors and the creators of the shows would come out and celebrate with them because that's the only access they had to the fans who liked their shows. So it all started with Star Trek, really.
0: And uh, a woman named Bijou. Betty Joe,
3: Betty Joe, being to
0: be Joe, yeah. be Joe, uh, who who wrote the first letter along with her husband, and they are yep. still. I mean, they are revered at Star Trek conventions now. Still, absolutely. Uh, and, and
3: the Discovery premiere in L.A., they're invited out by Roddenberry and Star Trek. They're invited <laughs> out because they know they're not doing a premiere of Discovery. Right. They know there are no Star Trek anything without the show being saved for a third season. It's amazing to think that Star Trek would be a show that. You would just never have heard of like a zillion other shows that didn't get a third season in the 60s that were shot on film and the cans were just burned. I mean, they didn't think there was a way these were going to be viewed later in any other capacity. Star Trek was saved and became a cultural phenomenon because of really what B. Joe and John did. And it's different now, though. right? It's different because
0: letter writing campaigns don't really have the same kind of uh, effect that they might have had uh, that we see in the film, by the way, which is called United We Fan. I'm speaking with director Michael Sparaga. Twitter doesn't have the same kind of impact. I don't think you could have 200,000 people on Twitter tweeting about something. It doesn't seem to mean as much as 40,000 letters uh, inundating Fred Silverman's office in
3: 1985. But it does work. I mean, we saw last year, uh, Sense Eight got right. saved for a series finale from the Chowski siblings, and they announced just yes, strangely, just yesterday announced the premiere date for the wrap up, and that was Netflix being targeted for a fan campaign, right. which I was, which surprised me because of the way they released their shows all at once. I didn't think you could sort of build up that sort of per episode discussion that leads to that sort of crazy fan behavior. As much as we like Stranger Things, if it gets canceled, we'll just move on to the next thing, next 50 things Netflix is putting on on Tuesday.
0: And tell me uh, the story about persons of interest, because that I think is probably for me the most poignant uh, fan and and
3: sort of fan retrieval of a show in the film. I just couldn't believe what happened when we were filming with Kaylee. So it's about Kaylee Russell, who's a big fan of Person of Interest. She got into it uh, for an episode where uh, two characters, Root and Shaw, very popular characters, got together. Right. And it was a lesbian relationship. And she read about it on uh, lesbian Tumblr. And then came to the show, became obsessed with the show, and then... It, the because sh- she says in the film, you
0: don't see people like me represented... Very often on television.
3: On CBS. On CBS, says, yeah, which, on network television, When I television. heard of that, I started to look into it, and I was like, wow, that's why Will and Grace is really so big. Because we, I, I think if you watch a lot of media, you're like, there's lots of lesbians represented. Yeah. There's the L word, there's this. But the L word has like a million viewers. Right. When you're talking network TV, when you're talking 10, 20 million viewers— it's like, it's a rarity. I mean, only just this year with the Alan Cummings show did right. we see, I mean, it was a big thing to say. Like, we have a procedural and the lead is going to be openly gay. And yep. that's like, With a boyfriend and who was affectionate with and a who affectionate
0: yep. with them, the whole thing, yeah.
3: And that was huge. So she's sitting there watching a CBS Dangerous World show created by Jonathan Nolan. And there's this lesbian relationship that draws in a whole new crowd and changes the whole vibe of fandom for that show. It really changes, you know. And then as we're filming with her, the character is killed off. Yeah. And that was part of the dead lesbian trope, which was a huge thing that had they actually released their episode a little bit earlier, they may have taken the brunt of what happened that year. Instead, it went to The 100 when they killed off a character called Lexa. And they just sort of had enough. This whole hashtag, you know, LGBTQ deserves better. And they had billboards up around L.A. because they were trying to get the attention of showrunners driving their way into the studio. Well, not driving because they're in Tesla's that pre-drive themselves (laughs) in the studio. But they're sitting in their cars as their Tesla drives into the studio saying – Ah, uh, what's that billboard? And we were interviewing the you know creators of person of interest on the weekend that the showrunner apologized uh, the hundred for maybe how he killed his character off, and they're waiting for the release of their episode that they filmed months ago where they know. Their lesbian character is going to be killed off in the same way. And watching Twitter explode on the day that it happened, just watching the episode, like I, it's three times during the night they air the episode, you know, across the country. Yeah, yeah. And you can see each time the fans reacting, oh, God, no, not again. You know, LGBTQ deserves better. And you're just like, wow. And so it was really fascinating that this character we were filming with simply because she loved the show and we needed a story taking place now. We just happened to be right in the middle of the storm of what was happening. And, yeah.
0: The film is called United We Fan. Uh, Keep an eye open for it. It'll be streaming near you or in a theater uh, near you very soon. Michael, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. As you may have heard, Avengers Infinity War is opening this weekend. It's set for world domination. It's on track to make about $500 million worldwide. To put that in some kind of perspective for you, the only other two superhero movies that have broken $200 million on their opening weekend are The Avengers and Black Panther. This movie, because it's opening pretty much around the planet at the same moment, uh, looks like it could do more than double that. This is uh, probably the, the culmination of the 18 films that came before it. It is a cliffhanger. It features virtually all the superheroes you've ever heard of from the Marvel Universe, all in one film. And in just a couple of minutes... CTV political analyst Scott Reed is going to chime in on his anticipation. I've seen it. He hasn't seen it yet. And so I'm really curious
4: to get your enthusiasm, your, your, your thoughts on what this will be all about. It, you're killing me. The fact that you've seen this, I have to avoid your eyes as I rattle through my many, mm-hmm. many contradictory and complementary <laughs> theories on what I will see. I can't get any cues from you. I don't want to spoil the surprise. Well, let's listen to just a little bit of it and then we'll get on with Scott.
0: All right, Guardians, don't forget, this might be dangerous, so let's put on our mean faces. Who are you guys?
1: The entire time I knew him, he only ever had one goal. To wipe out half the universe. If he gets all the Infinity Stones,
2: he can do it with the snap of his fingers.
1: Just like that. He won't stop until he destroys half the universe. Everything you know, Everything you love, it will all be gone.
4: Now I know it feels like all hope is lost. But together, we can stop Thanos. I think we'll pass. Just kidding. We're in. I'm Peter, by the way. Doctor Strange. Oh, I'm using your made-up names. Then I am Spider-Man.
0: All right, that gives you a sense of what the movie's like. Lots of action. There are some serious moments. There's also quite a few light moments. Scott, you are a political loudmouth. You've worked for (laughs) prime ministers. You're a serious guy. And yet you are very excited about this.
4: Talk to me about why you're so excited to see this movie. Because they're great stories. I, I, first of all, there's a legacy thing for me. I am a comic book nerd from my childhood. I was a latchkey kid in the 1970s. I spent time watching sitcoms from 4 to 6 p.m. and reading comic books from 6 p.m. until my mom made me put them away <laughs> and go to bed finally. So this is bread in the bone for me, this love of comic book movies and love of outstanding comic book movies. And I know you think know, I got... like. Guys like James Cameron, others saying, you know, the Marvel Universe is overdone, it's so saturated, it's so formulaic, and that stuff really makes me mad. And it makes me mad because they're outstanding stories. That's why they work, that's why this thing's going to blow the box office records right through the roof. It's because they're dynamite stories, and I think this story, in particular, is going to pack punch because we know the stakes are high. We know that heroes, so to speak, Mm -hmm. will die and must die because this is the culmination of what they've been doing for 10 years. Because this is contract renewal time,
0: and they have to figure it out. Now, listen, do not look me in the eye because I will not not give away anything about this. What I will tell you is that there will be several of the Avengers cast that you know and love that will be looking for work pretty soon. That's all I'll say about that. So there are stakes. Which I think is an accepted fact going in. Mm -hmm. So that That doesn't give anything away, and I will not tell you who they are. But there are stakes. And in my written review of this movie, and I was very careful not to give away any spoilers, because the, the, the plot is fairly easy to describe. Thanos... One of the world's, or the universe's universe. most powerful, the multiverse. Creatures, shall we say. Yeah, the multiverse, most nerd. powerful creatures, uh, is looking for these things called infinity stones. There's six of them. If he can gather them all, and they are spread out all over the universe, if he can gather them all, he can, with the snap of his fingers, uh, do what. It's sort of a tough love move. He thinks the universe is becoming overcrowded. He has a way of fixing that by killing half the right. the, 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 the population so that the other half can thrive. That is essentially yeah. what happens. Intergalactic Malthus. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, that part is is simple. The stuff that works so well here though, I think, is the interpersonal stuff. And and that's what makes these movies, I think this movie, worked particularly well. But that's from
4: the comic books, right? It is from the comic books and the rich history of those characters. And to be honest with you, in many respects, and in many characters and in many films, I think the Marvel movie universe has done a better job than the comic books. Really, And I think Thanos and and the Infinity Gems, as they're called in the comics, is a perfect example. It is, let's be honest, a ridiculous story. It's, you know, full-on science fiction, fantasy silliness, really, when you read the comic books. But I think by the way that they've turned a giant purple dude who comes (laughs) from somewhere in the universe. It looks like he could use some uh, moisturizer. Yeah, a little crack there on the chin. crackly face, yep. But they've made it real. And the way you make that real and the way you make people care about the characters and the outcome is to develop those characters. And so the secret of, I think, this weekend's success with Infinity War is that they took ten years and eighteen films. And they, you know, told us who Captain America was, and they worked through the backstory of Bucky Barnes and Because you care about those people, you now are going to care about this moment because you believe it's going to have real consequences for people and characters that you care about. And, I mean, that's what great films do. And I think they've done a tremendous job of the franchise.
0: I don't know if they originally started out with this idea that there would be a Marvel universe. I thought, I think Iron Man came out and made a lot of money. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Let's see if we can keep this going. And then it slowly built and built. But somewhere along the line, it clicked that this will be something different. And, you know, think what you will about this. I have a feeling that Marvel fans will enjoy this movie more than casual fans or people who are just going because it's Saturday night and they want to see a movie. I have a feeling that this really is a fan movie. but. Say what you will about the whole thing. They have done an extraordinary job of building this
4: universe. No one has ever really, over the course of 19 movies done something like this before. And the template that they've used is, in fact, the template that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko created in the early and mid-1960s when they launched the Marvel Comics universe in the comic books, where they said these characters would be interconnected, where they found out that kids who were 13 and 14 years old got really jazzed when they picked up Spider-Man and mm-hmm. saw that Daredevil was in it. Yeah. And they picked up the Fantastic Four and saw that the Avengers had come to visit. And they've been able to gradually do the same thing in the film universe and We know it is harder than it looks because we have this spectacular fail of the DC universe to compare it with, where that Justice League film was, let's face it, just pure confused
0: trash. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Prime Minister and Stan Lee. There's a story that you'll probably (laughs) never hear anywhere else, but I'll talk just a a minute about the DC films. I have not enjoyed the DC films. I found them kind of bloated. I found them um, not nearly as interesting. The great characters, Batman, Superman, you know, all that stuff, I'm not... Not finding though that it has the same kind of magic, so it in, in a sense you would think, well, comic book fans
4: are comic book fans, and they'll go they'll they'll go to see anyone in spandex and a yep. cape, and that's not true. No, well, because they lack heart. Yeah. And I think that's the fundamental issue there. Those DC films do not have the heart. They don't capture that. The heart of Superman as compared to the way they capture the heart of Tony Stark and Iron Man. What happens with Tony Stark, we've got about a minute left in this
0: segment, when Robert Downey Jr. finally says, I don't want to wear the suit anymore. Can they replace him, or do they have to kill off the character,
4: or what happens? So far, you look at the Marvel Universe and the way they developed the films, and you say to yourself, they've never stepped wrong. Everything that was supposed to be tough, how are you gonna do Guardians of the Galaxy? How are you gonna launch this uh, sidebar character of Ant-Man? They've made a success of it. This is gonna be their biggest test. In a post-Tony Stark world, if that's what we're entering into. I think it's going to be really, really difficult. I'm not sure that people are going to accept somebody who's not Robert Downey mm-hmm. Jr. in that uniform. I'm not sure they can anchor the franchise in the same way. So they're, they're putting, setting themselves up for a giant test because people may lose uh, those characters, those actors, and those realizations that they've come to love. It'll be interesting to see
0: what happens. And this movie, again, no spoilers here, but I have a feeling that after the next one, so this is part one, there will be an Infinity Wars part two, which is already shot, apparently, and will be out next year. It's after that, that I think you're going to start to see the, the reverberations of what happens in this movie with... Your favorite characters I, maybe being there or not.
4: I don't know when we're going to get into geeked out theories, but I have a full theory on what I think the so-called phase four is.
0: Okay, when we come back, uh, I will continue my conversation with CTV political analyst Scott Reed. We're going to talk about the Prime Minister, Stan Lee, and then <laughs> the geeked out theories about what's going to happen uh, in the future of the Avengers. Stay with us as we continue our in-depth look at Avengers Infinity War. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. You may have heard of Avengers Infinity War. Now, if you're not a comic book fan or a superhero going type, uh, you've heard of it because it's playing in every theater, on every screen everywhere near you. It's bouncing everything. It's, it looks to be maybe one of the biggest openings in movie history. We'll know whether that worked out for Marvel and Disney on Monday, uh, but right now it's set to make a whole lot of money. Uh, to discuss the film with me, we have CTV political analyst Scott Reed. Uh, you have worked for Prime ministers. we set this up, uh, <laughs> and the last week. you have worked for Prime Minister, you're a serious guy. You are very active
4: in politics still, but you are also... A huge comic book fan. Giant comic book fan. And just to bring the two worlds crashing together, I'll tell you a story. No. Twelve years ago, I'm working in the Prime Minister's office. The Ottawa Citizens Books Editor calls me up and says, Hey, you're a big comic book guy, right? I'm the director of communications of the Prime Minister. I said, Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge comic book guy. Stan Lee has written a Christmas book, a Christmas superhero book for kids. Would you like to review it? Could you do the review? I had to go through enormous hoops. I had to go and speak to the ethics commissioner. I was told that, in fact, I had to take compensation for it. Then I was required to donate the compensation to a charitable cause, to disclose all of that and to catalog all of that. And when it was all said and done, I became the guy that got to do what you've lived through 100 times, which is I was on that wheel of interviews. So I'm sitting in the prime minister's office. (laughs) Waiting for the phone call, all that Stan Lee knows is that he's got 10 minutes coming up with the Ottawa Citizen guy who's doing the book review. And I was after the Cleveland guy, and then I was before the Cincinnati guy. And And, and
0: and all the interviews are essentially the same, and the person on the other end of the phone is slightly bored
4: by it. Anyway, slightly bored would be exactly a good characterization of Stan Lee. But I like to think I'm a little bit proud of the story because I had a little funny wrinkle to it. So I get on. I'm waiting for the call. The call comes. I'm talking to him. I'm actually holding on the line. Stan Lee comes. Hi, true believer. It's Stan Lee. I'm like shaking with thrills. This is the realization of all my dreams as a kid. So I'm like, I'm going through. The, but there's a one big problem. The book was a stinker, and I don't mean only so-so. Like, it was a full-on lemon. It was terrible. So I'm going through the paces of doing the interview, and I think he could tell Mm -hmm. that I really thought it was a bomb. And he kind of, you know, what would you think of the book? And, you know, he was pushing me a little bit. Anyways, you go through the interview. That's all well and fine. We do it. You set it aside. Next morning, I come into the office, and uh, there's three or four people in the reception area, and I've got this uh, note on my desk. Stan Lee called says you have his number i phone the books editor at the citizen i say stan lee has called me back what do i do i did i thought we did yeah. the 10 minute wheel and that We're was over. it you never hear yeah. she's like i've never heard of this happening before she said like i've never heard it so stanley so then i call back and then stanley is like yeah uh, i wanted to follow up on our conversation i got the sense you didn't really like the book and i'm like well gee mr lee i'm so sorry <laughs> about that and then he stops me and he says and by the way I, who in hell are you anyway i i When I called back your number, it said I was calling the Prime Minister of Canada's (laughs) office. I'm like, yeah, I got to explain that. So I now have mounted on my wall that message. Stanley called, says he has your number. That makes me. uh, That gives me uh,
0: geek cred. Well, you'll also note that he is. uh, This isn't a spoiler. He's in the new movie as well. Shocker! He's in every single. He's in
4: every single. They say because of his age that they've shot like something like seven more. I Cameos I so, yeah. for various movies? Yeah, at some he's, point... he's 95
0: now. Right. I interviewed him last year, and like you, I was very excited. And, hello, oh, true believer, he says yeah. I wouldn't. Uh, and at the end of the interview, he said, you know, I really enjoyed this interview. And I was like, wow, Stan Lee loved the interview today with him. He goes, because you spoke loud enough that I could hear what you were saying.
4: <laughs> I was very proud of the fact that of all the people he did those boring cycle of interviews with, he called me back. So. Even if I had to apologize but not liking the product. So one of the
0: things that is uh, uh, an earmark of this new Avengers film, Infinity Wars, is that there's a lot of characters in it. There's a whole lot of Avengers in it. Jimmy Fallon put together uh, a thing the other night where he sort of brought them all together Brady Bunch style.
3: Here's the story of a playboy genius who was gearing up to form some sort of crew.
4: of thunder (laughs) one fought in world war
3: ii it's the story of a handsome star lord like the greatest to ever walk the earth by far and a falcon and a magic doctor wakanda forever
4: (laughs) so then one day all the heroes were assembled to
2: fight a villain who packed much more than a punch
4: That's
3: the way we all became the Marble Bunch, the Marble Bunch, the Marble Bunch. That's the way we became the Marble
0: Bunch. Uh Hello, brother. Shut up. It's from the Jimmy Fallon Show, and that was actually Chris Pratt and Robert Denny Jr. and everybody else uh, in Brady Bunch style, I guess, setting up the film. Uh, If you haven't heard about the film... And this is a line from the movie. It's not a spoiler. Tony Stark says, some big guy from outer space coming to Earth to steal a necklace. That's essentially what the movie's <laughs> about. Uh, but it's uh, it's been getting uh, terrific reviews. I have a feeling that it is, by and large, for... The fans who are going to go absolutely crazy for this movie, and they will go back and see it over and over and over again. Keep in mind, it is a cliffhanger, and there is a scene at the end of the movie, so you have to the sit post-credit th- the post credit scenes. You have to sit through the credits, and it seems like everyone on the planet worked on this movie because it's a long time, <laughs> but it's worth a look. It's worth a look. So stay for the very end. So you have some theories. About I do. What's coming up now? So this kind of sort of seems like it's wrapping up
4: one era maybe. Right. Possibly. It is, for sure. And moving sure. It's on be. to another. Because we know the business of the Marvel Universe and signing all these characters in studio politics is going to dictate that some of these folks go. So that's what, to me, makes it so much fun, is that you know that um, Captain America and Tony Stark, are maybe reaching the end of the line on this movie or the next because they have no contract beyond that. Now, maybe they're punking us and we'll find out that they are, but these guys are also getting old. I mean, Tony Stark's character is supposed to be like, you know, kind of late 30s. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. is like pushing 60 now. And so... And Chris, uh, Chris Evans is doing Broadway now. Yeah. and
0: things. So and, and, and again, anything that I say is not to be interpreted as a spoiler gotcha. in terms of characters that come... And go or stay or go. So I just want to make sure.
4: I have a shocker theory. I'm going to throw it out there. And I'm sure I'll be proved to be a fool. But it runs in in contradiction to the whole business point that we just made. Because my big theory is if you think about what would punch through in a way that nothing else would emotionally, what character's loss would work with the characters in the film, would grab the audience in a way that nothing else would I think if Spider-Man dies, hmm. the way they've done the young Spider-Man, he's the protege of Tony Stark, the protege of Iron Man. He's our window into this incredibly huge galactic storyline because he's an innocent teenager. He's sitting there with awe and blown blown away by it. I think having him die at the end of this first movie, when people assume that that's impossible because there's going to be a Spider-Man yeah. sequel, you know, I think then possibly they— And I had this whole weird theory that then in order to um, get the final soul stone that could resurrect (laughs) Spider-Man, you know, somehow Captain America will have to sacrifice his life. And then in the next movie, in order to activate the soul stone and resurrect Spider-Man, Tony Stark will have to surrender his life. I have this whole elaborate theory, but it all revolves around, to me... The biggest surprise and the biggest punch emotionally would be to have Spider-Man, the teen, who is in so many ways uh, the emotional heart of the film and the franchise, to have him die I think would really grab fans by the throat and I'm, I'm kind of hoping that happens so that I'm right. But I'm yeah. <laughs> desperately hoping it isn't because I don't want to see that character die. And um, speaking with Scott Reed, CTV's political
0: analyst, we should point out you haven't seen the movie. That's not a spoiler. Not, we don't know. It's not
4: a spoiler. I'm just geeking out, and I've tried to avoid Reddit also because I yeah. don't want to. Uh, I don't want to accidentally bump across something that I think is a genuine spoiler. So I'm just talking crap off the top of my head. Part of the fun of
0: these movies, though, is talking crap off the top of your head, is coming up with the fan theories. Yeah. If you go
4: online. This is what people do for months in advance. And I think that that's really an important dimension of it. And I I think it's the film... Reflection of what we see with binge television and binge golden age quality television. So people will obsess about Game of Thrones, about Westworld. What do they do after you watch an episode? This is the kind of geek I am. I watch it. Then I go and I read those almost instant online reviews from Vulture, from New York Times. I read those things so that I get the in-depth sense of what I might have missed. I then watch the episode again. And I think that's what's happening in this film. And this doesn't happen for every Film, I think again, it's an it speaks to the richness and the depth of intensity you can provoke in the fan audience when you got something like the Marvel Universe in, on your hands. Just a couple of minutes left. How
0: long can these superhero movies go on for? I mean, the obvious answer is well, as long as they're good. That's what uh, that, Kevin Feige, who runs the whole Marvel Universe, he said. As soon as you know we make a bad
4: one, that's when it stops. I think people make a huge mistake when they assume that it it is a genre. It's not a genre. Uh, it, it's a it's a tableau. And against it, you can play with genre. So you can have a science fiction, fantasy, heavy comedy dose like Guardians of the Galaxy For or you can have a po- or you can have a political thriller like Winter Soldier you can have uh frankly you can have a love story you can have a cowboy western story i mean that's it's a very rich tableau that you can sort of put a bunch of stuff again against as long as the characters are good and as long as the stories are good and so far i see no evidence that they aren't able to take characters large and small well loved and little known and in both cases, blow them up. Look at Black Panther, mm-hmm. right? I love Black Panther when I was a kid, but it wasn't exactly a household name. And that movie is an absolute blockbuster. And it's all because of the quality of the acting and the, the storyline.
0: That movie, the Black Panther movie, I think will be the first of these big movies, these big superhero movies, to get nominated significantly at the academy right. awards outside the craft uh categories like best makeup and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Scott Reed, political analyst
4: for CTV, thank you so much. Will thank you, you be dressing up in costume? For... I will not be dressing up in costume. <laughs> On the Thursday night I'm taking my uh I'm I'm taking my 8-year-old. I will leave you with one thought and okay. one word and I will avoid your eyes in case it might trigger a spoiler alert okay. for me. I leave you with this thought, Richard. Scrolls. I will
0: say nothing more in Avenger, Infinity Wars, playing everywhere, everywhere, all over the planet right now. Uh, Thanks to Scott for coming in. Thanks to all my other guests. Thanks to Andre and the board, most of all. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week.